Father, we rejoice that we have this opportunity tonight to be together, that we get to be indoors where the climate is uh, controlled, where we are safe and secure and we have lighting and we have your word in our hands, we have your spirit in our hearts, and we have this chance to, uh, to learn and grow. And we pray, Father, that you would be glorified in this time, that you would be pleased as well to work in the hearts of your people, even as we open your word and we look at what you have for us here. We ask that you would help us to understand your word in, uh, in its entirety, in how it's put together, how it is structured, and how we ought to understand it. And uh, so we pray for your blessing on this time. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So um, what I've been uh, wanting to do and forgetting every single time is I want to pass out uh, some cards for you guys to write down questions, because I know with all the material we've covered, uh, with as much as we've gone through, there have got to be questions. So I asked if Sophia would pass out just a few at the end of, of each table, um, and so uh, they can be passed around. If you have a question, uh, if you'll pass out three, four, five per, that's fine. If you have a question, write that down, and um, I'm going to try and give some time at the end of our talk tonight to... Uh, uh, ask and answer questions as well, but you know how I am, so there may not be much hour left by the time I'm done talking. Uh, so this is a way to get your question in, um, and so I would encourage you to do that. And uh, so go ahead and um, pass those along, and you can write down your questions, things that have been uh, concerning you, or uh, maybe some uh, um, uh, just some things that, that you've seen that you have questions about, or or things that have been said that you don't quite understand, etc. So. I would encourage you to that end, uh, just write those questions down and we'll get them in. And, and as I said, we'll try and uh, leave a little time at the end of our uh, talk tonight. So, um, like I said, this is our fourth time that we've been discussing this topic of covenant theology. And so, just by way of review, uh, covenant theology itself is an understanding of how Scripture is strung together, how it is connected, what's the structure uh, what are the bones upon which Scripture is built and the message given and things like that? And so we've talked about the idea of covenant and how God relates to people by means of covenant. And we went through and looked at the explicit covenants between God and people in Scripture. And we, uh, we went and, and talked about the Noahic covenant. We talked about the Abrahamic covenant and, and on and on. And so uh, we talked about all of those covenants. We recognize that there are certain elements that those covenants have in common with one another, um, and uh, certain things that, that uh, let us know there's a covenant there, so that even in those times where the word covenant does not appear, we are not caught off guard that, in fact, there is a covenant there. We looked at the example uh, of Second uh, Samuel chapter 7 and the Davidic covenant, and we looked through there, and we noticed that there's a key word missing in the Davidic covenant, and that is the word covenant. But that doesn't give us uh, any fits because of a couple reasons. One is that we saw elsewhere in Scripture that that passage and that relationship is referred to as a covenant, though the word is not used in that chapter. As well, we saw that there were the elements common to covenants, that it looked like a duck, it walked like a duck, and it quacked like a duck, so it's a duck, right? And so uh, we saw that both of those things were true. Uh, we looked at some other examples of that sort of thing. But in doing so, what we're doing is, is recognizing that, that God has organized Scripture by means of covenant, and we can best understand what it's teaching when we see all of Scripture read together. 
I was talking with some folks after uh, the sermon this morning, and we were talking about how so often we've grown up thinking about this portion of Scripture, this, this Old Testament story, for example, kind of in isolation. And then the next week we come and we talk about the different, the next story perhaps, and we don't really see how they're connected together uh, from one story to the next, and we don't really see how really all of Scripture is connected to tell one overarching story. And so often we kind of uh, fall into that trap in our daily Bible reading, we read a chapter at a time or two or three chapters at a time, and then we close the Bible and we move on, and the next day it's as if we're starting fresh. And so often uh, Bible teaching and preaching can be the same way, and uh, what we're trying to do when we're looking at covenant theology is see what is the structure lacing it all together. And so last week, most specifically, we looked at the covenant of works and uh, spent some time talking about that, um, and so... Uh, what is the covenant of works? That's not one of the explicit covenants uh, among those five that we talked about in the first week or two, but um, we, had, we defined it as a covenant. Does anybody remember uh, what is the covenant of works, what we defined that as? Some of you are writing that down as your question right now. What in the world is the covenant of works? <laughs> I didn't read that. Uh, in the Bible, I didn't see that name, covenant of works. Well, the covenant of works is a covenant made between God and Adam, and Adam, by the way, representing all of humanity. So Adam was not a, a private figure. He was not a private individual in this agreement. He was representative. He was a public figure. And there's a, a covenant made between God and Adam where Adam was required to obey a certain command. The result of obedience would be life. The result of disobedience would be death, not just for him, but for his posterity as well, because he was a public figure. Like we talked about the federal government declaring war on Antarctica, that means that we all who are Americans would suddenly be at war with Antarctica, though we had nothing to do with it, etc., right? And a, a similar kind of arrangement. And we saw that in the covenant of works, specifically for Adam, the, the command was not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was the specific command that was before him. That was a, a unique command. That was the test. That was the probationary period is to see, is he going to obey this command? And of course, we all know how that went because we've read Genesis chapter 3, and we see that um, <clears throat> the, the serpent sneaks in and begins to talk to Eve, and the next thing you know, they're both eating of this fruit, blaming one another, blaming God for it. Uh, there's become brokenness in their relationship, and then the Lord shows up and pronounces judgment uh, upon them for having broken this and says, I promised death, and indeed you will have death, though it's not perhaps in the way we might have expected. It wasn't, it wasn't immediate physical death. There was spiritual death immediately, physical death that would come later, um, but there were the consequences for it. And so uh, that, that covenant can be seen, or at least the basis of it given. If you'll open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2, you ought to be very familiar, familiar with Genesis by now. And uh, we're in chapter 2 in this discussion, Genesis chapter 2, and uh, the second half of 16 and into 17 there, you have the Lord commanding the man, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And so that was the command, that was the nature, that was the penalty for breaking that commandment would be death, right? And of course, we know how that goes. That's exactly what they do. And, and so the covenant of works is broken. This relationship 
established based upon Adam's obedience goes south immediately. Adam disobeys, and by the way, we all follow suit. We inherit his guilt because we are in him. He's the public figure representing us, and we follow suit in our own actions as well, right? And so the covenant of works is broken. But uh, just because it's broken doesn't mean it evaporates, doesn't mean it disappears. And that's, we're going to see that come up in our conversation again and again. The next question I have for us, not only what is the covenant of works, but what does the covenant of works do for us? Why is it important for us to understand the covenant of works in the Bible? Well, first of all, simply put, it helps us to understand why we are works-oriented toward God. If you ask someone on the street, are you a good person? They will say, yes, I'm a good person. And then you continue the conversation and ask them if they think they're uh, being a good person uh, qualifies them for heaven. They will say, of course, I've done the stuff. I'm good. I've met the standard, right? That's the baseline for humanity. We go back to our relying upon our own accomplishments again and again. That is, uh, that is explained when we think about the fact that the very first right at the beginning of creation, there's this covenant of works between God and Adam. That's the baseline. That's, that's where we start. And of course, it's twisted and it's warped and all of those things. And so usually people don't even necessarily think about obeying God as being what is required to be good. They get to define for themselves what is good, but nevertheless, they think they do it. And so often we fall back into relying upon what we can accomplish. And understanding the covenant of works is really helpful for that. Another, uh, another thing that having a good understanding of the covenant of works does for us is it helps us to understand why the active obedience of Christ is so important. The active obedience of Christ. And so it's important to distinguish between two different concepts right now. Okay? So one would be the passive obedience of Christ, and one would be the active obedience of Christ. And the passive obedience of Christ Usually, we say that because we're talking about Jesus and His suffering on the cross. When we say passive obedience, we don't mean Jesus is letting things happen to Him. He's, it's, not just, it's not passive in the sense of the opposite of being proactive. It's passive in the sense that He is suffering. It's connected to the word passion. So, He suffers in His life, and it's, it's of course, most pronounced at the cross, but if you think about even Jesus' ministry, how often was he insulted? How often were, were, was he uh, called a blasphemer? The, the, the Lord of glory makes known his relationship with the Father, and people call it blasphemy. They pick up stones to stone him. He suffered all the way through his life, all the way through his ministry. And so that's the, the passive obedience of Christ. We're very familiar with that concept. That's Jesus uh, dying on the cross for us right? Paying the penalty. He's suffering the consequences for what we owe. We're very familiar with that concept that Jesus died for my sins, right? That's the passive obedience of Christ. But what understanding the covenant of works helps us to think about is the active obedience of Christ. If, let me ask you this, Christmas time's coming and we're going to uh, tell stories of the nativity and, and very often wrapped up in there you get the story of Herod seeking to kill all the little boys in Bethlehem, two years old and younger. Horrific story. Horrific story. If all Jesus needed to do was die for our sins, 
why didn't the Lord just allow him to be slaughtered in Bethlehem at two years old? He was innocent. He was sinless. If all that is needed to pay the penalty for my sins is a spotless lamb, surely two-year-old Jesus was a spotless lamb. He was obedient. He was sinless. If all that is needed in order for me to be saved is for my sins to be punished, there was an opportunity. Now, it's cruel and it's horrific, but frankly, Jesus dying on the cross was cruel and horrific as well, as He was the innocent one who was being slaughtered by people who uh, were looking for His death, trying to get Him out of the way, and, and all of those things. That was cruel and horrific as well. But why, why could it not have been that He died in Bethlehem for our sins as a little boy and not have to go through all that stuff? It's because of this. It's because the covenant of works required obedience. Obedience to God's command. And so when God gives uh, this commandment to Adam and He establishes this relationship based upon works, that means works need to be done. That means obedience needs to be yielded. So Jesus, as a two-year-old baby, had not sinned, but nor had He kept God's commands, nor had He obeyed God's law. He who was born of a woman, born under the law. Why? So He could keep the law. Righteousness needed to be established. It's more than, you know, salvation requires more than merely, merely, the payment for the penalty of my sins. It also requires the active establishment of righteousness in obedience to God's commands in order for this covenant to be fulfilled. And so we see that uh, thinking about and understanding the covenant of works helps us think about why the active obedience of Christ is so important to us that Jesus not only needed to be innocent, but He had to have a record of righteousness as well. Because when we stand before God, coming with a blank slate is not going to cut it. If all the negative is taken away, you're still left at zero, which does not impress a holy God. He demands righteousness. And so Jesus fulfills that righteousness in His active obedience as He's obeying the law. Not only is He suffering, but He's also actively obeying and keeping the law on our behalf. So that's the importance of the covenant of works. And it's really important for us to keep that in mind, to have that covenant established in our minds. And we're going to come back to that again and again. And I'm going to resist the urge to, uh, to talk more on that topic. Now let's move on to the covenant of grace. Okay, Next week, uh, Lord willing, we're going to move on to talk about the covenant of redemption, which, which be- begins to discuss more of how these relate together. Uh, But I want to move on to the covenant of grace itself. What is the covenant of grace? We were talking about the covenant of works, which was established between God and Adam. Adam is a representative of all of his posterity, which is you and me. What what is the covenant of grace? Well, the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology defines it this way, and this is not a bad place to start. It's the covenant made between God and the elect. In it, He offers life and salvation through Christ to all who believe. That's a, that's a pretty boilerplate uh, definition 
of what the covenant of grace is. It's a covenant between God. So if we think about the elements, the participants, it's between God and the elect, those who will be saved. And what is given? What is given is eternal life. That's the reward. What's the requirement? What's the stipulation? Faith and repentance, right? And so we see that all of the elements uh, that we talked about in covenant are there. Essentially, boiled down, the covenant of grace is Jesus fulfilling the covenant of works and giving you the credit. That's essentially what it is. Boiled down to its, uh, to its most basic point, it is Jesus going back to that covenant of works, completing it on our behalf, and giving it to us. It's ours by faith. He does the work. We trust in Him. We get the credit. Okay? And so, uh, that's the essence of the covenant of grace. And that helps us, uh, will help us as we go through and think about Scripture more and more with that category in place. Open to uh, 3.15 of Genesis. You're already there probably. Genesis 3.15. And this passage gets talked about a lot, and it ought to. The fall has happened. Adam and Eve have partaken of the fruit. The Lord is on the scene. He is uh, rendering judgment upon the serpent. And the second verse there, verse 15, is his speaking to the serpent. And he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Right? So Adam and Eve have just been overcome by the serpent. They've but just been defeated by the serpent. The serpent has snuck in, and he has, uh, he has tricked the woman, and sin has entered the picture, and Adam was right there and, and uh, watched it all happen and then partook of it himself, and they've been defeated by the serpent. They've just believed the serpent instead of believing God. They've obeyed the serpent instead of obeying God, and because of his trickery and their falling for it, he, uh, death enters uh, the human race. So Adam has broken the covenant of works, and Adam receives the consequences, and so do uh, all of us, right? But verse 15 is a promise that God will send a seed of the woman who will overcome that serpent. That very serpent who overcame Adam and Eve will be overcome by the seed of the woman. That he will crush the serpent's head, as Adam should have done, by the way, when the serpent crawled into the garden. He should have run it off or strangled it, killed it, crushed his head. He did not do that. So this seed of the woman will do that. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, though it's at the expense of uh, the, the crushing of his heel. And so this is the first gospel promise in the Bible. This is the first mention of the covenant of grace. Here we have it given that, okay, Adam and Eve, you have just failed monumentally. But there will be a seed to come who will undo what you have messed up, who will obey where you did not, 
and who will take the penalty in your place. You have that in seed form there in verse 15 about this seed of the woman. And of course, as we've gone through Genesis and as you go through the rest of the Bible and you trace that language of offspring, that language of seed, or, or even the themes of serpent, you can see that this is a big deal that plays out in the rest of Scripture, this ongoing struggle. And you're going to see it all come to, to a culmination, come to a head at the cross and then the resurrection. Because now uh, in Jesus, the head of the serpent has been crushed and the heel of the Savior has been bruised, has been crushed. And so we have this uh, covenant of grace. This is the very initial giving of it. And of course, it's in seed form and, uh, and it's, it will be developed as time goes. And so the covenant of works, if we compare and contrast just for a moment, the covenant of works is based on man's performance. The covenant of grace is a covenant accomplished by the seed of the woman, but with its benefits given to us through faith. That's how the two covenants relate together. And when I uh, look in the confession here, there are a couple of uh, pretty clear paragraphs that address this topic. And uh, I'm in uh, chapter 7 and paragraph 2, and then I'm going to read part of paragraph 3 of the confession as well. Moreover, man having brought himself under the curse of the law by his fall, it pleased the Lord to make a covenant of grace, wherein He freely offers unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in Him that they may be saved, and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto eternal life His Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. It is alone by the grace of this covenant that all the posterity of fallen Adam that ever were saved did obtain life and blessed immortality, man being now utterly incapable of, of acceptance with God upon those terms on which Adam stood in his state of innocency. All right, so he's, uh, the confession here is explaining uh, in more succinct form than I have done right now that uh, uh, with the nature of this covenant of grace, that God gives grace that is accomplished by Jesus, given to us by faith, and we couldn't have done so ourselves. We would never have done so ourselves, okay? There's also a statement in there that I, I think is helpful because here we have a promise in Genesis 3.15, but when will the seed of the woman actually come? When does Jesus come on the scene? It's not chapter 4 of Genesis. It's not even the Old Testament, right? You go all the way to the New Testament, thousands of years later, Jesus comes on the scene. What about all of those people between the Garden of Eden between Adam and Eve being kicked out and Jesus on the scene. What about all of them? How are they saved? Well, they're saved by the exact same covenant. They're saved by that exact same promise. It is the one covenant by which all believers in all ages shall be saved. It's the one way of salvation from that time. And so we uh, looked at Romans uh, chapter 4 and we were preaching through there. And if you remember, uh, for the sake of time, I'm not going to spend time there in, in chapter 4 right now, that we're going to go to chapter 5 in a minute. But Paul was talking about justification by faith, and he's saying, this is not a new idea. What do we learn from Abraham? How was he justified? By faith. Okay, what about King David? I mean, he's one of the greatest of us. What about him? Was justified by faith. 
He's making the argument that, that justification by faith, or in the terms we're using right now, the covenant of grace, has always been the only way of salvation. No one has ever kept the law. No one has ever been able to obey the covenant of works for himself. There's only one way of salvation. And so, Paul, uh, in Romans, points to Abraham, the great man of faith, and says, and justification then was by grace through faith. And even with David, that's the case. And so, it shouldn't surprise you now, says Paul, that justification is by grace through faith, right? And so, you have this situation where Old Testament saints are looking forward by faith to the Messiah to come, to the seed of the woman who's going to come and accomplish that. And we are on the other side looking back in history at the seed of the woman who came and accomplished that, right? And so we both are justified by His work. I told Trina I was going to tell a story about my family because I only have six kids, right? And so imagine we go to, uh, we're, we're at a, a carnival or a fair and there's, a, there's a, a place that sells ice cream and it's a, you know, whatever, it's a you know, $2.50 per ice cream or whatever, and that's all they sell is just that. And I'm standing in the middle, and I've got three of my kids standing in front, and I've got three of my kids standing behind, right? And we go up to the counter, and the one in front says, I'll have an ice cream, and he's going to pay for it. Points back to me, and I hold up a credit card, right? And the next one goes, and the next one says, I'll have an ice cream cone, and he's going to pay for it, and I hold up the credit card, right? And then I get up there, and I say, these are all mine. (laughs) Debit card. Oh, sorry, debit card. They look the same from a distance, (laughs) right? So I I get up there and I pay and I say, these are mine. I'm going to have one too. And these are mine, right? And so I pay. And then the next one comes and says, yeah, he paid. He paid. He paid. That's how it is with us and Jesus that in the Old Testament, they were at the counter as it were, and they were saying, he's going to pay. He's going to pay. The seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. Hasn't happened yet, but it's going, he's going to and I'm going to have my ice cream cone now because that's when I live, right? Likewise, we, after the fact, look the other direction, right? And so that's the idea. That's the concept of the covenant of works and uh, the covenant of grace and how those two work together. And what I'd like us to do now is uh, go back to Romans chapter 5, and I think that's where we finished last week. It's hard to finish uh, ever with Romans 5, and so um, we're not going to today. But if you go to Romans chapter 5, Now, what I did, and what I often do, is I will print out the the passage, and I I color, and I use circling and highlighting and whatever, because I'm very visual, and so the visual helps me understand the passage, and that's what I've done with this. I don't like to do that in my Bible, so I will do it on here, Um, but but, uh, I want to walk through this passage of Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, and I want us to look at the aspects. Uh, let's see if we can identify, my, and again, my, my hypothesis here or my proposal is that this passage is discussing the interaction between the covenant of works and Adam and the covenant of grace and Jesus. And here we are in the middle, right? So as we're going through it, I'm, I'm going to ask uh, whether you think that was uh, covenant of grace or covenant of works. What about uh, there in, in uh, chapter 12, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Covenant of works, right? Result of Adam's fall. 
Adam does this as our federal head, as our representative, and we, uh, we reap the consequences, right? Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. Look down at verse 15. Many died through one man's trespass. Covenant of works, covenant of grace, or something else. Covenant of works, right? Many died through one man's trespass. Again, his trespass, the public one representing me and, and us, and many die because of that. Much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded from any. There's a key word in there, right? Covenant of grace, right? So we see that he's, he's comparing and contrasting these two covenants, and he's showing how they work together and how we understand all of human history, in fact, our own history and our future in light of those two covenants, right? Many died through one man's trespass, right? But Jesus Christ gives grace, the free gift uh, of the one man, Jesus Christ, and it abounds for many. Verse 16, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. That sounds like a federal head representing us, bringing problems, right? Trouble, covenant of works, the judgment following one trespass. So that trespass, that covenant between God and Adam had uh, consequences. Judgment following it brings condemnation for us after that one trespass, right? So he does the deed, we uh, reap the consequences. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Covenant of grace, right? So there's all kinds of trespasses. You think about your own trespasses that are not just one, like Adam in the garden, right? I mean, we, we have millions of trespasses, no doubt, right? The free gift following many trespasses, the free gift is given to us. After all of that, our failure, our, our incredible failure, and yet we receive justification. 17, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, covenant of works, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. You see what's happening here? We have two federal heads. We have two public figures representing us. One that we were born into is Adam in his covenant of works with God that he fails and we reap those consequences. That's what we're born into. That's death spreads to all, right? And then on the other hand, we've got another federal head, another public figure who represents us, and in his obedience, he receives a reward, life, righteousness, justification, and he gives that to us. We receive it. Those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Covenant of grace all the way. Being, being shown here to us. Verse 18, one trespass led to condemnation for all men. Covenant of works. Public figure sins for us. His trespass leads to our condemnation. So, one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. Jesus, as our federal head, as the representative of, of all of those who are in Him, that public figure, He, in His life, accomplishes righteousness. And it leads to justification in life for all of those who are in Him. 19, by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Covenant of works, plain and simple. 
So, by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. You see it playing out? You see how it's this back and forth between the covenant of works and covenant of grace? You see how it's, it's, the, it's the interaction and the, and, and the comparison and contrast between these two public figures? describing and explaining how it is that we have life in Christ. It's being explained for us. It's being shown for us in a, in a, a great contrast that's right there in pink and green on my sheet. Verse 21, sin reigned in death, covenant of works. Grace also reigns through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the covenant of works had certain requirements that needed to be met. Obedience. Adam failed to obey, and you and I inherit his failure to obey, and we also fail to obey. Jesus obeys. In the covenant of grace, he, born of a woman, born under the law, takes on those commandments and fulfills them and completes them. He has the righteousness. He has earned the righteousness. But there's a penalty for the breaking of the covenant of works. What's the penalty for the breaking of the covenant of works? And what does Jesus do? Having kept the covenant of works yet, because His his goal is to give us life, His goal is to satisfy God in all of His righteousness and holiness, Jesus Himself takes on our penalty for having broken the covenant of works. He pays the penalty in Himself. So that by faith, we who were born in this covenant, born in the covenant of works, and follow suit like our first father, doing just the same stuff. Though even if we hadn't, even if we could white-knuckle it, we've inherited His guilt. That's given to us. It's imputed to us. And yet Jesus, having done what He has done, He obeys the the commands of God. He pays the penalty for disobedience to the commands of God, and He freely gives us that by faith. So the covenant of grace is essentially the keeping of the covenant of works and credit being given to you, and that is yours by faith. And the glorious truth in Scripture again and again is that even that faith is a gift of God to you. Ephesians 2, Philippians 1, uh, all over in John, even that gift, even that faith is the gift of God to you. And so that's why we point to Jesus and His completed work. That's why our comfort and our encouragement comes from looking to Him and not examining how I'm doing against some covenant that I must keep because it's been kept. I failed it horrifically. It's been kept by Jesus, the Savior. And so if I'm going to go rooting around in here, if I'm going to look for my obedience to the covenant, I'm going to be discouraged. And I'm looking at uh, uh, the wrong covenant keeper. I'm looking to the wrong person to be covenant keeper. Jesus is the covenant keeper. And He gives it to me purely by faith. That's the nature of the covenant of grace. And isn't that a wonderful and glorious thing? I can't think of anything more wonderful 
and more glorious. And so the author to the Hebrews says this in chapter 9 and verse 15, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. It's all right there. This is how Scripture is put together. This is how, this is how God is communicating to us the redemption that we have. In fact, it's how God has accomplished for us the redemption that we have in Christ. And so that's the covenant of, of, of grace. And you can see how it matches the covenant of works, but, it, but it, it is Jesus keeping that for us, and we get the rewards. That's what salvation is. That's what our redemption consists of. That's what uh, the covenant of grace accomplishes for us. And so we go back and think about the elements. We talked about the elements of the covenants, and we, we said there are always two or more parties. Well, who are the parties in this covenant? Well, it's God and it's the elect, those He's going to redeem. What are the stipulations? What's the expectation upon us? It's repent and believe, right? It's repentance and it's faith in Christ. And the glorious thing that we talked about that we're, we won't develop today, we've done so in the past and we'll do so again, is that even that repentance and faith is a gift of God to us. He accomplishes salvation for us. He doesn't make us savable. He doesn't, he doesn't prepare a glorious gift and say, here, do this tiny little thing and it'll be yours. Just push this button. He doesn't do that. He accomplishes the whole thing and then includes you in it. That's what this salvation is. What a, what a wonderful and glorious thing. What's the promise of the covenant? Eternal life. That's how it was concluded there in uh, the end of Romans chapter 5. Grace reigned through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That promise of life and death in the covenant of works has now been accomplished for us and given to us, and we get to have that as our very own. All right, that's the covenant of grace at, at top speed, and there, there's more to talk about with that, but I hope that's, I hope that's a, a, something that, I, think it's, I hope it's memorable. I hope you have handles on those things, that you can take those things with you and think about those two covenants, and, and as you begin to think through Scripture, you begin to see how those two things interact and occur again and again. And how the one is damning to us, the covenant of works. And the other is, is saving to us. And that's the redemption that we have in Christ as described and explained here in the covenant of grace. What an amazing truth that it took me decades to find. And it was right there on the page the whole time. All right, questions. We've got, we've got about eight or nine minutes, about eight, eight minutes. We'll try and finish actually on time. But if some of you are bold, I know some of you are bold and have questions, go ahead and fire away. I will do my best, or I will punt to someone who, who can answer it. Stephen's in the back, so. Questions for me at this time, but maybe it's about the covenant of works, covenant of grace. Yeah. Yeah.
bunch more serpents. So the, the question is, in Genesis 3.15, we have seed uh, mentioned uh, twice there. And the question is, who are the seed, particularly the seed of the serpent, right? Um, I think there's, I think seed of the serpent, as you see it play out in Genesis, you have two basic lines of humanity. You have the, the, the line, I mean, we're used to thinking in terms of the line of Seth and the line of Cain. But actually, there's something more basic than the line of Seth and the line of Cain, and that is the line, the seed of the woman being the line of Seth, or the believers, the seed of the woman, versus the seed of the serpent, which are the evil uh, people in opposition to them. And so you see within Genesis the developing of, of two peoples, one with Satan as their father is the language Jesus would use in the New Testament, and the other who have God as their father. And it's the interplay between those two. No, I don't expect uh, any future servant, uh, serpents or anything like that, but you see the ongoing battle that Jesus faces or that the people of God face throughout the Old Testament and um, uh, those who come in opposition to Him, etc. That's how I understand the seed of the serpent, to be those who continue in opposition against God and His saving work. Yeah. Other questions? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So good question. So you understand the nature of the question there in uh, back in Romans chapter 5 and looking at verse 18. By the way, that question is what led me to covenant theology. Someone was asking that question right there. And they were asking, because it says all men. One trespass led to condemnation for all men. That makes sense. We get that. But then it says, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. Question, do all men receive justification in life? No, that's universalism. So the person asking this question was trying to figure out a way primarily was trying to figure out a way that, that election couldn't be a real thing, I think. But he was trying to figure out a way to understand this passage to be saying that, that everyone is justified in some way, but not everyone takes advantage of it in some way. That was the essence of his argument. He was trying to remain universal because he didn't like the limited, the limited concept of this. Those who are in Christ are the only ones. He didn't like that. So he, he was reading this as universalism, but he knows that's heresy. So he didn't want to go that route. So he was trying to find some other way, right? Here's how I understand it. And this isn't, um, the, uh, how I understand it is that if you read the entirety of this passage, he's talking about those who are in Adam and they receive this. Sometimes he calls them the many, right? Over here, he's talking about those who are in Christ, and they receive this, and he calls them the many. And again and again, and even before, he's, he's talking about the many receiving uh, this and that, right? Um, but then in, in verse 18, he says all, and then he goes right back in verse 19 to talk about many. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. I, 
I think this is, this is not my uh, uh, final answer on this. I, I think there's a, there's a more detailed way to answer this, but for the purposes of, of what we're saying now, he's talking clearly about Adam and all of those who were in Adam, and Jesus and all of those who were in Jesus. Usually, he talks about them in terms of this bunch and that bunch, or this many and that many. But in verse 18, he wants to, he wants to show the, the extent of what's been accomplished, and he talks about all of those in Adam and all of those in Jesus. And then he goes right back to talking about the many again in verse 19. And so, studying that question is what brought me to wonder what in the world Romans chapter 5 is all about. And as I, as I banged my head against it, and as I worked, I wasn't even preaching on it. This is, this is not in connection, this is before I preached on it. And I was, thinking, I was thinking about this topic right here, and I didn't know what to call it. I didn't know uh, um, uh, what federal head meant exactly. I knew I saw it here, but I didn't really know what it meant. But I was struck by the words, look at verse 14 in Romans chapter 5. There's a key in there that so helps us understand the relationship between Adam and Christ. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. When you read about Adam, you're not just reading about the first man. You're reading about him, and he has some special connection with Jesus. He is a type of Jesus. He, he, in his life, in his actions, in some ways, and in many ways, points to Jesus himself. You see that they, that they stand in, in, in contrast to one another as heads of, of separate covenants, as it were. That you've got Adam and all that he does contrasted with Jesus and all that he does. That, that you've got certain parallels and things there that, that are in common. That, that phrase, he was a type of the one who was to come, should make you pause and think, how is Jesus like or unlike Adam? How are they parallels? Yes, we have one that disobeyed and one that obeyed, but how can thinking about the two in light of each other help us understand what's going on? And the way it helps us understand what's going on is that Adam was in covenant relationship with God where he was to obey. With certain consequences, if he didn't, he stood as our federal head, as the public representative of us in that. He failed. We get the consequences. Jesus, in covenant relationship with the Father, obeys God's commands, takes upon himself the consequences for our having disobeyed these commands, and gives that righteousness to us so that we have life by what he's accomplished. That's how we understand Adam and Christ. And by the way, 1 Corinthians 15, um, uh, Paul, Paul uses very similar language, though he's talking about a slightly different topic, but he uses very similar language. This was the way he thought. This was Paul's theology that Adam was a type of Christ, the one who was to come, as spelled out here in Romans chapter 5, as plain as day. And so, this concept of the covenant of works and the covenant of grace is, is so helpful and is so enlightening, is so helps me understand the relationship between the commands in Scripture, the promises in Scripture. It so helps me in my own assurance in when I think about my standing before God. If I think like Adam, if I think like I did when I was in Adam, represented by Adam, I think, well, have I done enough? And who could ever do enough?
you never finish that checklist. You always spend all your time regretting the things you've not done. But I'm not represented by Adam anymore. By faith, I'm represented by Christ. And so now I think, well, what remains undone? Jesus did it all. He paid the whole thing. He was righteous the whole way. And He gives me credit for it. And so now I look to Him and I say, yeah, I lack. And He doesn't. Praise God. I am a child of God, not because of anything I've accomplished or any of that, and it's not kept. I don't keep my position in any way uh, because of that. I look to Jesus alone, and Jesus accomplishes that for me. And that weight is lifted. And now all of a sudden, I'm freed. I'm freed from all that burden, the, 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 the guilty conscience, the, the trying to earn God's favor, the, the, the trying to, to, to do something to make Him happy with me. I live out of the fact that I already have God's favor in Jesus, full stop. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, we will never stop rejoicing and thanking You for Jesus, our Savior, and what He has accomplished for us. Thank you that He didn't just uh, even just die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin, though that's impossible to ask. That's too big a thing to ask. It's too much. But that's, that's not all. Jesus, in fact, undertook to obey the covenant of works on our behalf, accomplishing righteousness before you. He Himself completing the entirety of the work perfectly. And then now, for a worm like me, that credit... That forgiveness of sin and credit for righteousness is, is credited to me by faith alone. And even that faith He gives. Thank You for salvation that is ours in Christ. Thank You for peace with You purchased for us by Jesus our Savior. What a great God. What a great Savior we have. What a, what a, a great message is this saving truth. We worship you and we praise you. We glorify your name and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.